name was Doug. And uh, we are blessed because Pastor Tim had that good friend. Because uh, uh, Doug Finkbeiner has become almost our alternate uh, pastor. And uh, we just love him. And if you're new to the chapel and haven't experienced a message from Doug, you're in for a treat this morning. Because uh, while Pastor and Tim is in Texas, uh, we're blessed to have Doug Finkbeiner come and speak to us. And so uh, get ready to hear uh, Dr. Finkbeiner. Doug. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Um, if you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to the uh, book of Job. Oh, oh, little ones need to go. Okay, what age? Everybody knows what age group? Junior church. Junior church gets to go. Yes. Good, thank you. I, is this something new? I, I, mean, I think it was here last time too. I'm noticing now there's, there's a clock up here. Is that, I mean, I'm getting the hint. Okay, all right, all right, just. Oh, that's not for you. Okay, okay. Okay, but it doesn't have it doesn't have like a stop button on. It's going to go off at a certain point. Uh, anyway, so okay. Anyway, it's a delight to be back with you guys. I, I always always really enjoy it. I, um, before we actually look at the text, I, I was thinking. I'm sure you've all had these experiences. Some of the circumstances that we face in life, um, when we look back at them, they're comical. I mean, we have experiences like that. Um, when I was dating my wife, which goes a long way back, one of the ones that stands out in my mind, Shrey was coming in to visit. She was coming in from California. And um, I had to pick her up at Newark Airport like at 6 in the morning. And I was doing a paper route at the time. And so I thought, I've got to rush through this paper route so I can go down to Newark and pick up my fiance. I was all excited. You know how that goes. And um, I asked my dad. My dad let me borrow his car to take on the paper route. And we had had a terrible storm the night before. I remember I'm on this paper route and I come barreling up over, because I was going as fast as I could to try to get these papers delivered. I come up over a hill and there in front of me, you know, a, a river, or not a river, but a creek had kind of overwashed its boundary and there was logs and rocks and all kinds of stuff. So I just, I just went right over it, wiped out one of my dad's tires. I mean, just sliced it, destroyed it, you know. Went off the side of the road and pulled the whole thing out. Got out and I thought, man, I got to change this thing real fast. And, and, and just as I started to change it, it started to rain like crazy again. And um, <laughs> it was a newer car. It tells you about my mechanical skills. I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get the um, tire cover off. It, it was because it was a newer car. You had to use a key for it. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm mangling the thing trying to get it off. I got mad and I kicked it at one point and something popped out. I said, hey, it looks like a keyhole. So anyway, figured it all out. I bent over. I split my pants at one point. It was, just, it was just, the whole thing was a catastrophe. And I remember standing there in the rain, drenched, trying to change this tire, which I finally got changed, fixed. And then had to explain to my dad <clears throat> about other things about the car. But anyway, remember looking up to the Lord and saying, why are you doing this to me? And when I look back on it now, it's funny. We all have experiences, we look back and we say, it's funny. But then there's other experiences we look back and we never say they're funny. Isn't that true? Um, several years ago, a young man by the name of Glenn Chambers had given his life to the Lord to go to Quito, Ecuador. He's going to be working with a radio station there. 
And right before he left New York, he scribbled a quick note to his mom. He just found a piece of paper lying there in, in the terminal, and he wrote the note, stuck it in, a, in an envelope, and sent it off, and, and headed into the plane. But the plane never made it to Quito, Ecuador. For whatever reason, somewhere going down, it, there, was a, there was a mountain that they weren't able to get over, and they ran right into that, a metallic stream, and everybody's dead and gone. And you can imagine what that was like for his mother when she heard the news. What made it even more difficult is when she got that letter several days later after he had passed away and she knew it. She opened it up and he you know, basically said, Mom, I'm excited, I'm going to really miss you, etc., etc. But when she flipped it over, it was from an a, it was a section of an advertisement from the newspaper. All, it, all she saw scribbled there was the word, why? And that's what she wrestled with. And it's one of the questions you and I wrestle with when we look at life so often, isn't it? God, why is this happening? So much so that I had mentioned in the Sunday school class, an agnostic man who once had claimed to know the Lord actually as a teenager, but now has gone far away and is an antagonist to Christianity, has just come out with a new book that probably will become another bestseller. And make sure I get the title just right. I listened to him on NPR last week about it. The title of the book is this, God's Problem, colon, How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question, Why We Suffer. And my guess is he's a very gifted writer. It'll have a far reading from a lot of people. But he's absolutely wrong, isn't he? One thing the Bible does is it enters into our deepest questions, folks. When you come to the book of Job, the question before us is, why do bad things happen to good people? Isn't it? And I'm going to explore the entire book of Job in the next 30 minutes with you. So hold on, we are going to really take off. But let's ask for the Lord's blessing as we enter into this. Father, what I want you to notice in the book of Job, um, well, notice the introduction, a familiar section, but then, then what I want you to watch with me, I mean, normally, I don't know about you, but when I, when I was growing up, I knew Job 1 and 2 pretty well in chapter 42. <laughs> you know, I mean, everything in between there, I wasn't really quite sure what was going on. And, 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 and I think something is lost if we do that. So, We'll start with chapter 1 and 2, of course, but I don't want to end there. And I think what you'll find as we work through this book, there's a series of three crises that come into Job's life. And in many ways, it's the final crisis that comes in chapter 3 and following, which becomes most difficult for Job. So let's unpack it. And, and, and I think I've told you this before, but remember that old Kellogg's commercial, Taste Again for the First Time? You know this story. Try to taste again for the first time like you've never heard it before. And try to enter into the tension of what's going on. What we find right out front in verses 1 to 5 is that uh, Job is a very good guy. Notice what it says. There was a man in the country of us named Job. He was a man of perfect integrity or righteousness who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, I, I want you to notice something here. These are not Job's words. These are the words of, of the divine author. Do you see that? I mean, these are the words, as people are looking at Job saying, everybody knows that's 
a righteous man. This is not Job saying, hey, I'm righteous. This is others saying it. What else do we learn about him? He's a blessed man, isn't he? He had seven sons and three daughters, ten kids. I thought six was a lot. But kids are a blessing, aren't they? Ten kids. And especially integrity, I mean, in, in, in antiquity, you know, when you're dealing with agricultural cultures, the more the merrier, you know, kind of the way it works. So, ten kids. His estate included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So he's a man that is blessed. He's a man of great righteousness and integrity. I mean, he tries to cover his bases. Look at what happens in verses 4 and 5. His sons used to have banquets, um, each at his house in turn. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. I mean, folks, he's covering all of his bases, isn't he? When you look at Job, you see a righteous man. A couple years ago, I was reading through chapter 29, 30, and 31 of Job. And I was just noticing all the things that he does as a righteous man. Let me just mention them to you quickly. It's, it's really unbelievable. He responds, he responded in mercy and justice for the needy and the oppressed. If you were looking for a guy that stood up for the poor, it was Job, the richest man that lived. He was marked by honesty, sexual purity, um, equity amongst individuals that he dealt with, charity, loyalty to God over money. Here was a man who had it all, but served God more than the stuff he had. Unbelievable. He was marked by generosity and integrity. I mean, you can just run through those chapters and, and you can see one righteous act after another. This guy was a good guy. That's the setting. The plot actually thickens in verse 6. And here we face the first crisis. The question at the end of the day is this. This is the ultimate contest. And, and if you think of it this way, kind of think of a split screen. Because what happens is we'll go back and forth between heaven and earth. Okay, as we, work at the, as we look at this uh, split screen. But here's the question at the end of the day that you're going to see repeated through. Will Job curse God? Okay, notice what happens. Look at the heavenly conflict here in verse 6. One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? Satan responded, from roaming through the earth and walking around on it. Then the Lord said this. Can you imagine that? This is what God Almighty says about Job, folks. This is unbelievable. Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity, of righteousness, who fears God and turns away from evil. I mean, the true and living God is saying that, folks. That's not anybody. That's not even the writer of the book. That's not even Job himself. It's God. Satan answered, Does, God, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions are spread out in the land. 
but stretch out your hand and strike strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord said. Uh, The Lord told Satan. Everything he owns is in your power. However, you must not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan went out from the Lord's presence. There's the split screen. There's heaven. There's information that Job is not privy to, which is very, very important in the book, folks. Job never knows that discussion is going on, does he? And in that discussion, Satan says, let me touch him, and he'll curse you to your face. God says, okay, and the first crisis occurs, which God permits Satan to touch everything that Job owns and all the relationships that are dearest to him. Now, think about this. The wealthiest man on earth at that time loses virtually everything but his land in a matter of moments. Notice what happens. Verse 13. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, remember they kind of did this uh, rotation thing, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabaeans swooped down and took away, took them all away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So, you know, can you imagine in that moment he's thinking, all right, um, let's see, uh, boy, oh boy, I lost a lot of good men. I lost my oxen and my donkeys. Okay, I, tough day. But that's not where it ends, is it? Notice what happens in verse 15. Verse 16. While he was still speaking, another came unto him and reported, a lightning storm struck from heaven. It burned up the sheep and the servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped. I mean, that's, that's not opposition. I mean, that's just like a natural calamity, right? Job's got to be thinking, whoa, this is a very, very hard day. That message, verse 17, that messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. And in that moment, folks, he realizes he's lost everything but his land. Everything is gone. There's no insurance in antiquity. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's gone. And then perhaps the hardest of all blows comes in verse 18. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the desert, struck down the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Can you imagine what that must be like? I have, I have six kids that I love with all my heart. I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like for my wife to call me and say, all your kids are gone. They died in the car accident. They're all gone. I mean, I just, I, I, that just, that would be very, very, very hard. And in this moment, this man loses everything he has. 
That's his first test. The, the test of personal loss. And you know how he responds. He comes out of it actually in very flying colors. He's very deeply passionate. He's, he's in pain, but notice what happens. Then Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He was sorrowing. He fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise be the name of the Lord. And the writer says, Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. And I don't know about you, I just stand back and I look at that and I say, I know why he's a righteous man. Because <laughs> I don't know that Doug Finkbeiner would fare so well. He fears, he fears, Feels the pain to its very depth. But he doesn't curse God. There's a second test. And that picks up in chapter 2. It's not the test of personal loss. It's the test of physical pain. Notice the conflict in heaven. Again, the split screen. One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord and the Lord asked Satan where have you come from from roaming through the earth and walking around on it then the Lord said to Satan have you considered my servant Job no one else on earth is like him a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil he still retains his integrity even though you have incited me against him to destroy him without cause skin for skin Satan answered a man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life Stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan. He is in your power. Only you must spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with incurable boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat down among the ashes. Have you ever had boils? I've only had, ever had one at a time. I think I've only had two or three in my entire lifetime. But you don't forget it when you have it. Man, I, I just remember that thing pulsating and keeping me in pain. Just one, just one. Until finally the thing broke. Job's got it from the crown of his head to the heels of his feet. And all he can do is sit in ashes and try to cut them open in some way to relieve some of the pain. And as he unpacks his story as chapter 3 and following goes on, one of the things you find, you find all kinds of descriptions of what Job is going through. And he says in this process, he goes down to skin and bones. He can't even eat. He says his, brat, his breath is just putrid. The odor is just, just, just offensive. And he unpacks the pain and the sorrow and the sleeplessness and the lack of hunger. I mean, the hunger and the lack of appetite. Just one thing after another. And you, you pick up this guy who's in tremendous pain. And again, somebody does give him advice, but it's not very good advice in verse 9. His wife said to him, now folks, she didn't know what she was saying, but she was a mouthpiece of Satan in this moment. Notice. His wife said to him, do you still retain your integrity? What? Curse God and die. 
That's the whole point. That's the test. That's the last thing that she should have said. And instead, notice what he says. You speak as a foolish woman. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? The Bible says throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Incredible personal loss. Unbelievable physical pain. And through both of those crises, Job not only refuses to curse God, but he accepts what comes from the hand of God. But there's one more crisis. And this crisis is going to run us all the way from chapter 3, <laughs> all the way over to chapter 37 and 38. It's a huge crisis. And I call it the crisis of bad theology. And actually, at the end of the day, it's the one he struggles with most. And you know what happens. The Bible tells us he's sitting in that ash heap and he's just in pain and he's sorrowful and it's very, very difficult and he's got some buddies that come and sit around to counsel him. Now, the best thing that they did was come, sit with him, and keep their mouths shut. It's the best thing they did. The problem is, when they started opening their mouths, it created all kinds of problems, didn't it? And what you find as you read from chapter 3 on is you find a series of cycles that run through the passage. Um, after Job gives probably one of the lowest laments in the entire Old Testament, which comes in chapter 3, can only be marked by Jeremiah's lament in his own book. But this, 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 this book, if you, if you ever are having a really great day and you really want to be bummed out, you're looking for something in minor key, read Job chapter 3. I mean, it is just Job saying, I am in deep sorrow. This is one of the hardest things I've ever been through in my life. That's where he says, you know, I wish I was never born. Yeah, all those kinds of things. Which is what happens when people are struggling and suffering. We understand that. The problem is, as chapter 4 develops, the, the friends begin to speak. And you find Job then dialoguing with his three friends. Uh, what, what's interesting is, his counselors speak, speak, there's three cycles. One guy, it's like a tag, I, the way I often view it, I view it like a tag team. It's like, here's poor Job over here suffering. One guy steps up and he says, you know, Job, and he starts talking. And basically what all three of the guys say, one after another, is the same thing. Job, we know what the problem is. Because our theology says bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. Job, this is bad. Which means what? You're a bad person. I mean, you know, I mean, they, they had it all worked out. You know, bad things happen to good people. And so, like a tag team, the one guy comes up and gives this lengthy speech. You know, you really think you're something else, but you know, you're really not. And Job comes back and says, look, I'm not saying I'm great, but you know, I can't identify anything specifically in my life. Tag team, the next guy comes up. Well, Job, <laughs> you got a major problem, pal. You know, and he goes at him and tag team through. And what happens through the cycles is the speeches become shorter and shorter. And you're getting this sense like these guys on the other team, they're running out of steam. They don't know what to say. It's getting more and more difficult. And that's exactly what happens as the thing cycles through. But here's what happens that's insidious. And at the end, a young fellow by the name of Elihu gets up and makes some comments, some of which, some of the things which he says are somewhat interesting. But he's, he's way off too. So problem with all these guys. Here's what happens so it becomes problematic. And, and I just went through a few, like, I, all went, I went, just went all the way over to chapter 37 here in about five minutes. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to chapter 38. 
once you show you what, what, how this thing picks up. So in this third crisis, the crisis of bad theology, Job hears the theology again and again. Bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to bad people. Job, you've got the problem. And Job keeps saying, I can't identify anything in my life. But then he begins to think to himself, you know what? If it's true that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people, and I can't identify any major problem in my life right now that I'm unrepentant on, maybe the problem is with God. And what happens as you come to the end of chapter 37 is Job is de demanding an affidavit from God. Basically, what he's, what he's saying, these guys have worn on him so long. Now, Job never curses God. But he gets to the point where he says, God, you owe me an explanation for what you're doing. Is that ever true, folks? Does God ever owe Doug Finkbeiner anything? He doesn't, right? But sometimes we feel that way. And Job got to that point in his life where he was saying, God, you need to explain. Can you imagine that? Here, a little man in the universe telling God, God, I need to know exactly how you work your universe. You've got to explain it all to me. Folks, that's arrogance. Now, now in all fairness, I'm not too hard on Job because I would have been there long before him. <laughs> yeah, long before I mean, when I was starting to lose the sheep and oxen, I would have been there probably. So I'm, I'm not trying to be hard on the guy because I understand. But what happens is he bought into a very bad theology. And by the end of that, he was saying, God, you need to explain why you're doing this to me. Now, here's what's so fascinating to me. The great reversal in this story really comes in, in chapter 38. Um, and what you find is this. When you were reading the book at the beginning, you kind of figured that the big conflict was between God and Satan, and that's certainly there. But as you get into chapters 3 and following, you know who the conflict is really between? It's between God and Job. And that's where the conflict is. Satan just kind of slips away at this particular point. We don't hear about him anymore, actually. Here's where the conflict is between God and Job himself. And I want you to notice what he says. Look at chapter 38. And I want to make a couple comments on it. Chapter 38, the Bible says this. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. And he said this. Job, you want an answer? I'll give you an answer. Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? That's pretty hard. That's, that's, what, that's what God says. Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. And so here's God's questions. And, and running all the way through chapter 38 are a whole series of questions. Here they are. Uh, where were you when I established the earth? What, what would Job's response to that be? Uh, I, 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 like I wasn't there. <laughs> okay. Right. Another question for you. Tell me, if you have understanding, who fixed all of its dimensions? Well, well you did. And like, I don't, I don't understand that at all. Okay. Uh, certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Uh, well, you did, God. Uh, what supports its foundation? Uh, I don't know, but like you're behind that too. You, you, know, you know what I mean? I mean? And what happens is he just unpacks one example after another example 
of God's incredible power and knowledge. George Bernard Shaw, years ago, attacked the whole book of Job partly because of this chapter. You know what he said? He said, here's a man who is wallowing in his pain and sorrow and questions, and he doesn't know where to turn or what to do. And, and all God can do in chapters 38 and 39 is talk about crocodiles and butterflies. That's what he's going to go on and do in the next chapter. He's going to say, like, where were you when I made the crocodiles? Where were you when I did this? Where and and, and Saul's point was, what kind of an answer is that from God? This guy is saying, Lord, why are you doing this? And, jo and, and all God says is, nah, 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 nah. I have more power than you do. That's, that's how Saul portrays it. Is that what's going on in this chapter? Not at all. You know what the text does? And this, this to me is marvelous. God never answers the why question for Job. Do you realize that? You know what he does instead? He says there's a far better question that needs to be answered. It's the who question. You don't need to know at the end of the day why things happen specifically to you. You need to know the God who is sovereign and loving and wise and good, who oversees the whole process. You leave the why to him, and you focus on the who question. That's what happens in chapter 38 and in chapter 39. And, and once again, God's questions kind of come in, in, in two rounds, if you will. Um, so by the time you get to the end of uh, verse 40, let's see. Yeah, look, look, look at, let's go to chapter 40 for just a second. All these questions come after him, come, come to him. And, and notice what happens then in chapter 40, verse 3. After just one question, after another question, after another question. Like, do you give strength to the horse? Do you adorn his neck with the mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? Do you, I mean, all the way through chapter 30, just in rapid succession. And, and all the answers are the same. Job keeps saying, uh, no, uh-uh, mm, not me. Mm, I wasn't there. I don't know. All the way through. Chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord, I am so insignificant, how can I possibly answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not reply twice. But now I can add nothing. And then we go into a second round in chapter 40, verses 6 and following. And when you get to the end of that, we come to chapter 42. In chapter 42, notice what Job says. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who, 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 who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to possibly know. You said, God, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I have heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back my words and repent in dust and ashes. You know what I love about this text? And maybe God did later, we don't know. God never told Job this. Can you imagine? When this was all happening, can you imagine if God would have come to Job and the world went and said, Hey, Job, Job, 
look, there's been this deal between Satan and me. And Satan said you'd curse me, and I said you wouldn't. And, and that's why I allowed all this stuff to happen, Job. Do you understand now? And Job would have said, oh, oh, thank you, God. But what I love about this text is God never does that. You know why? Because he often doesn't do it in your life either, does he? He allows things to come into your life and you say, God, why? And sometimes God says, you know what? I love you. I am for you. I can do anything. I'm all wise. I'm all knowing. And I've chosen not to tell you. Instead, what I want you to do is trust me. Know me. And leave the why question to me. It's exactly what Job is told. Philip Yancey in a book years ago said, faith is accepting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. It's one of the best definitions I've ever heard for faith. Isn't that true? Accepting now what will only make sense in reverse in glory when we look back. And Yancey had his finger right on the book of Job. There are things we just don't know that just don't make any sense, which won't ever make sense. I mean, we know generally God wants to develop us and be a testimony and all that, and that's all true. But we don't always know specifically why now, God, why this, why me? We don't know the answer to that. And folks, what I want you to know at the end of the day is you don't have to. What you need to know instead is God. The most important question in life and on this one, Bart Ehrman is wrong. The most important question in life is not why, but who. And if you know the who, you can rest with him, leave with him the why. Bernard Shaw looked at this text and attacked it on two fronts. The second front he attacked is the end of chapter 42. You know what he said? He said, look, this text is so unfair not only does God never answer the why questions but then he gives the guy back double of everything he had before and Bernard Shaw said this so often life doesn't work like that like what comfort is that for people and his point was people that contract illnesses or go through tragedy or have loved ones that go through tra tragedy. So often, there's never a happy ending. So, how does this book encourage anybody? And I would say a couple things to that. I would say, first of all, the reason this book needed to have a good ending is several fold. First of all is this. God is a good and gracious God. And when there was no longer any reason for him to extend his grace and mercy because the test was passed, then he just unleashed his grace and mercy on that man. That's the first thing I'd say. Second thing I'd say is this. For the believer in God, our lives always have a happy ending. If you extend it far enough into glory... If you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, your life has a happy ending too, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Because you know Christ. And one day you will be with him for all glory. And anything we face now in this world is merely a glitch on the screen of eternity at the very most. No, 
This text had to have a good ending because God is a gracious God. And for God's people, at the end of the day, he will extend his mercy and his grace. One other thing I'd like to say in closing. I think it's very, very important. Remember this. Was Job a righteous man compared to other humans? Yes, he was. But I want you to realize something. There was only ever one truly righteous man that ever lived. And it was Jesus Christ. Who deserved nothing that he got. And yet, you have the one true righteous individual that ever lived. Who was abandoned by God. So that you and I would never have. And when Doug Finkbeiner goes through his deepest, most painful experiences, I am never abandoned by God because the truly righteous was so that I would never be. And I know the who. I know God is over my suffering. I know God is up to something in my suffering. And I know God is always with me in the midst of my suffering. Folks, at the end of the day, that can always that can always sustain us for whatever God has, has allowed into our lives. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you've been through. But I know this. For every one of us, we live with pain. It may be minor. maybe huge. And I want you to be able to rest in the sovereign God, a mysterious sovereign God who is for you and is always up to something even when you don't understand his ways. Father